Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have with me Martin Freezing Willis. Ah, so you've been watching the weather report. Yeah, I mean, I've been seeing all these things about storms. Uh, What was I looking at today? Oh, yeah, uh, a package I'm supposed to be receiving today, and it said uh, the Northeast has these bad storms going on, which may delay my package. I'm not sure why they felt... That would affect my package. Luckily, it does not. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it's in the 90s already here. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. But, of course, I was in Mexico, Rocky Point, which is not too far away from here, about four-hour drive, and um, at the beach. And it was, yeah, very warm. Also, it felt great, actually. It wasn't too hot. There was a breeze. The water was cold. But uh, it was wonderful. And some of you are thinking, wow. ah, we were supposed to have a show on Monday. Well, you know what? I would rather be at the beach <laughs> than doing a UFO show. Sorry, people. However, yeah. I did have a ton of fun doing our interview. This is funny. I did the interview earlier today. So this is one of the rare times that I'm actually posting the interview the same day that I did it. Um, and we're recording the same day of the interview, but this was with Leslie Kane and ah. this was about UFOs. So some updates, some people are curious and I know some people will be listening just to hear what she says about this recent Chilean case that she wrote about, which is kind of sensitive because some people had, uh, as you and I have discussed, had figured out it was likely a plane. Well, it's pretty much plain. So we talk a, a bit about that. We talk a bit about John Podesta since she's friends with him. And um, so we do talk some UFO talk before we get into her new book, which is absolutely fascinating, called Surviving Death, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for an Afterlife. And uh, we'll go over, you know, what's in the book in our interview, but she covers a lot of different research regarding the possibility of kind of uh, our consciousness, how it may be um, able to exist outside of our body, uh, despite of our physical body. And that's pretty weird, dude. Yes, it is. I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of her book right now. Oh, you are? I am, and it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she's actually really you know she's a, a very talented writer to begin with, but um, the research she's doing in this is really incredible, and mm-hmm. uh, it's a it's a great book. I highly recommend it. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. So it's really good. Yeah, so I'm you're looking not... forward to hear the show. Yeah, yeah. And you're not the first person who has told me that. Um, 
I have actually spoken because we gave away quite a few at the conference. Uh, her publishing company sent us like a dozen, and oh. we did some giveaways. And everybody who's gotten one that I've heard back from has uh, and, and is reading it really enjoys it. They they love it. So, uh, and I'm excited. I haven't had time to read it. I don't like to read at the beach. I like to um, enjoy the scenery and. Uh, relax in the sun, but uh, I, I'm. This is definitely the next book I'll be reading because uh, it looks fascinating. Yeah, it's great. It's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. So it ought to be a fun talk here in just a little bit. Now you've been doing some non-UFO stuff, but not on your UFO show, right? Right. I have a separate show called the. Um, I know you're gonna laugh at this. The Everything Else Show. And that's because, you know, I was doing this UFO show now for four years mm-hmm. and I'd wander into different topics and, you know, always get kind of kicked back to going back into the UFO topic. And I said, you know, darn it, I'm going to do a show about everything else. And actually, Leslie is coming up uh, sometime in April on my show. And, uh, you know, I had Bigfoot uh, a couple of nights ago and. Just some things that I'm really interested in. And, you, you know, actually a, had a Bigfoot on the show? <laughs> well, he didn't say much. No, I had uh, uh, Stan Gordon. Oh, on. okay. Yeah, Stan Gordon. And, yeah, I have a lot of actually really interesting shows. I have a whistleblower, CIA whistleblower. And I have a um, – and if anyone's ever watched the Stephen Avery case on Netflix or anything like that, I have the, the prosecutor from that. And just some interesting – Interesting, hmm. different types of shows. It can be a lot of fun. So a whistleblower, did he just blow a whistle? No, no. He, he's the, the only one that went to prison for Americans using torture. Oh, my goodness. He blew, he blew really? the whistle on it. He oh, spent 30 wow. months in jail. Yeah, it's a really good. Holy uh, moly. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Sounds like some yeah. really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be uh you know, a little challenging going out of things I know, but I really love that type of thing. So mm-hmm. I love learning about different things. So yeah, I've fun. often Thanks, thought so. of doing something like that myself. I'm just so busy. I just don't have the time. Although it would be fun. Yeah, I don't know how I'm finding the time, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I'm just doing it. You're doing it well when you're buried in snow and cold. That's might be right. a little easier, but once the weather gets better, might be that might be when it's hard to find some yeah. time. Well, I sure wish I could escape this and have a little adventure myself, but I'm I'm stuck here babysitting this big big old place. Yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of interesting topics and stuff, you uh your purpose for being on the show is actually UFO news. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um and and accompanying me and and helping uh make the show entertaining which you do very well my friend oh well thank you thank you so uh yeah let's ufo news what do you got for us buddy okay so a ufo paces rural rural washington vehicle now this happened all the way back in 1994 um and this was reported recently on the site uh by roger marsh uh so it was a large green orb and it paced a vehicle that the witness was riding in. And uh, this, again, happened on January 15th, 1994. And the guy was, uh, the two friends were leaving Sequim and heading toward Strait of Juan de Fuca on uh, 
on that highway, I guess it was. And um, they were in like an old pickup truck. And this guy alongside of him, they both saw this thing was about 25 to 30 feet off the ground. It looked about four feet in diameter. And uh, this guy's a carpenter, so he should know measurements. And at some point, they turned around and started looking at the vehicle uh, for the green light that might be reflecting on the inside of the window. That's how they first saw it. And uh, But anyway, it just followed behind them, and uh, they stopped. And the object increased its speed and all that. Just one of these really odd things. And I think there was something else reported like this recently in California. Not just like this, but uh, something like this. Yeah, know, we talked something about faced it. A vehicle. Right. I don't remember yeah. if we talked about it on my show or your show. But, yeah, in California, somebody reported something similar from 1999, uh, a white orb. But, yeah, this is really weird, this story. So, uh 30 or 40 feet from the witnesses, 25 to 30 feet off the ground. And this whole thing about first seeing it uh, at its reflection, but then apparently it sounds like they saw it straight on. But uh, pretty weird, pretty weird uh, report here. It is, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I know there are some other cases where cars have been followed and you know, just kind of makes you think of is something has to be intelligently controlled somehow mm-hmm. in order to do something like this. Yeah. Grant Cameron, I mean, you know, has these stories about these orbs that they saw. What does he call it? The red something? I can't remember. He he wrote it. It was his first book he wrote about these sightings, and that's how he got into UFOs. And huh. uh, we've talked about it a lot in our interview with him. We We did specifically on those sightings and these orbs people were seeing. And he said he even tried to jump on one. Uh, really? Run toward, yeah. He wasn't able to, but uh, it's weird. Yeah, these these orb stories. Uh, I think, uh, what do they call them? Somebody has a term from, for them, I know, uh, in the field. Um, orbs of light. O-L something. Hmm. I'm sure a listener will tell us. But, uh, yeah, there is an acronym because there's always an acronym for everything. But, uh, yeah, very cool one. Um, So, also, it was the anniversary Monday, and I guess I was a bit derelict in my duties uh, because I was out of town on Monday. But I actually did log in and post some stuff on our Facebook, and uh, we posted a video about the Phoenix Lights, because uh, it was actually the 20th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights just on Monday. Uh, we posted a video on our YouTube with some exclusive interviews that we did with Phoenix MoveOn. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Link and I, who's done uh, the Phoenix Lights documentary. I also posted it on our, our Facebook a lot of stories, local stories on the Phoenix Lights, mostly which had uh, Link Katai in them. And the news called and asked if I would do some interviews, but I was just uh, out of town. And then um, in our, our – this is really cool, and, and this is why I think people should watch this this video that we made because the local historical society has a – the Arizona Historical Society has this beautiful location – called the Heritage Center, which is this museum, and they have a Phoenix Lights display in there. 
So the Heritage Center is kind of like this, the history of Phoenix, and you walk through and it goes through all the history. And towards the end, I think it's the very last thing, is this Phoenix Lights thing that you display, you walk through, and they've got a model of the object over your head. It's very, very cool. So we filmed that, and we interviewed the director of the Heritage Center. And that is all in this video at the Open Minds TV YouTube channel, Open Minds Production YouTube channel that you can go check that out. You can also see all of this on our Facebook and everything. So no, nothing new regarding Phoenix Lights except for it. That that's the news that it was a 20th anniversary. Right, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to be talking to a few of those people um, on my show as well. Oh, who? Well, Lynn for one. And uh, Francis uh, Barwood. Oh, cool. And also uh, Steve Lance, who did the latest uh, Phoenix Lights documentary that I heard is really good. Well, it's Linkatized documentary, and he helped. And it they they modify it, but it hasn't really the best stuff hasn't changed for a very long time. I think it's Mm -hmm. like the documentary itself's been out ten years. Um, and, and it's very good. They, they keep adding to it. Um, the new stuff they add is just kind of these, you know, people kind of talking about what they think about the stuff and it's very speculative and I'm not so into it, but the first, like let's say 45 minutes of that documentary is great. I mean, really good interviews with witnesses and everything. Yeah, I heard so, it's a uh, really good chronological. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they start talking about a lot of just kind of, I don't know, there's all, you know, they get to be so many theories on even people who think that, you know, they understand the message that was supposed to be coming across uh, from these craft and stuff like this. So, mm. but, uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard, I've heard a little bit about that yep, a little telepathy yep. type thing people have commented about right yeah and then the problem out here is you know i i do feel that the the later event that happened at about 10 p.m uh were flares over the goldwater range right which which when we when i did my trip we drive alongside it it's huge and um i saw i see flares there all the time i think i've talked about this they get mistaken for ufos often uh, you know, almost at least once a year we have this story, are the Phoenix Lights back because someone thinks that flares over there are UFOs. Um, so that sort of thing happens a lot as well. But, of course, the sightings that took place uh, on that day, all the way from Needles to Mexico, uh, during the day are all just amazing and just so many witnesses. Pretty cool stuff. Right, right. And there's some, you know, there's, I know that they, they're, they're not, I don't want to say they're ongoing, but there have been other sightings of similar type, you know, orbs in formation. Um, you know, I know in 2005, I know there was even earlier sightings as well. Yeah, there have been reports. Again, a lot of these are the orbs over the Goldwater Range, but, um, and these stories go viral uh, and they just turn out to be those orbs. Uh, however, Arizona has a lot of reports. Yeah, right. All right. Big any open skies. Big open skies and clear skies most of the year. Right. And, and it's warm enough to be outside a lot of the year. I so, know. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, I'm not saying that to brag or make you feel bad. 
<laughs> but just to explain why so many people are outside at night. Yeah, for sure. And there is a cure for um, those of you like yourself who may feel bad because you're in the cold, which is to move, move. here. Right. Yes, I just had that conversation yesterday with Mark D'Antonio. Oh, you did? Yes. Yeah, because he so, wants to move out here, too. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can call Alejandro Rojas for all of your real estate needs <laughs> in the Phoenix metro area. Shameless plug. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Any any other news there, buddy? No, I'm pretty much done here. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me for the beginning of the show. Let's go ahead and speak with Leslie Kane. I am happy to welcome back to the show Leslie Kane. Hello, Leslie. Hello, Alejandro. How are you doing? I'm so happy to be with you again. Yes, I'm doing pretty well. Um, so finally, you know, the conference is done. I actually, well, I did get a show done last week, and then I went on vacation for the weekend. So usually my show's up on Monday, uh-huh. but we're doing this real time. Actually, I, I rarely get the shows up the same day as the interview, but we'll be doing that today. So, um, yeah, I got it. The listeners have been kind of frustrated with not getting enough shows. Well, I'm glad you had a vacation. You deserved it. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much. It was really nice. So it hasn't been too long since I had you on last, and you were on um, with Jose Lay. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it Lay or Lie? I think it could be either way, but in Chile, it's probably Lie. Oh, okay. Okay. I I always say it that way, but... As far as he's concerned, either way is okay. So. Cool. So it's great talking with him, but um, that case that in particular, the most recent one that we spoke a lot about on the last show, I guess it's, it seems you, you did a follow-up on the Huffington Post. It looks like that probably turned out to be uh, an aircraft that was identified, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly there were certainly some people who – who made a good case for that, and I did mm-hmm. report on it. But I'm telling you, the they're still working on this. The, mm-hmm. the and the the committee at CEPA and including the the head of the air traffic control system there, they're still not convinced that it was an aircraft. Oh, so I interesting. Think, yeah, I mean they they have a new group of French analysts who are looking at it now that they have the radar data because the French study that was done earlier they didn't have the radar data when they did that. So who knows? They may conclude the same thing, but they the um they haven't heard back from them yet, and they they're just not they find it hard to accept that. Not because you know they're trying to be defensive, but they they have all these reasons why they don't see think that an aircraft that was taking off and going through you know a low elevation to a high elevation could have been captured in the one frame of that camera that was that was constantly focused on the same direction mm-hmm. i mean but you know i don't really want to speak for them i think what will happen is they're going to spend some more time with it and then hopefully i can do another story which will sort of um bring more information forward about their thinking of it and the french and and maybe there'll be some resolution to it so i just sort of i'm stepping aside for now and letting things unfold and and i'm happy to bring back to people who are interested as a journalist, you know, I, I mean, I'm just reporting on it. I'm not taking a position on it. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, you know, I greatly respect the government agency in Chile, but, um, you know, they, they're, it, we'll just see what happens. They, right. Uh, 
they'll keep going and and I'd be happy to provide whatever further information they come up with and we'll see how it all plays out. I think it's pretty interesting mm-hmm. happening and um, I certainly do respect the work that people have done to suggest that it isn't uh, that was that airplane. I mean I'm not saying that they they're necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that the Chileans are still in process with it and not convinced. Hmm. So, yeah, and and you know, like you said, the information is very compelling. I think maybe they have. It looks like they figured it out that it, uh, the aircraft uh, answer. But even if that is the case, and Sefa comes back and says, "Oh yeah, it was an aircraft," um, they've still. I mean, they're such an important organization, and of course. Everybody gets it wrong occasionally. I'm sure you've had some cases, or maybe you haven't, where you felt very convinced that it was one thing and it turns out to be something else. It happens to me all of the time. But uh, they're such an important organization that um, I think that for anyone out there who uses this, and some people do, unfortunately there's, of course, there's grouchy people on the Internet, that uh, this for somehow reflects poorly on them or they shouldn't be taken seriously. I, I just personally completely disagree with that. I think uh, they do some amazing work and, and their outreach alone to other countries to take this topic seriously, I think is really important. I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, yes, I mean, they may not have as much of the highly sophisticated technology that scientists might have in America. I mean, that's so, you know, you have to cut that. That just may be the case, uh, and they have their own ways of going about things, but I agree with you. I think that their role in the world is what's really most important, mm-hmm. the fact that they exist at all, that the country has an agency with four full-time staff people that investigate these cases, and that they have a place in that country where pilots and military and, and others can report cases, and the cases do get investigated, and as you said too, they they have connections with governments around the world. So they're really playing an important role in terms of, I think, in terms of uh, getting government involvement in the topic and uh, just bringing credibility to it on an official level. And that's so much of what's needed, in my opinion. They have put put out some very interesting cases that haven't been solved. So you know, you're right. This one, you know, everybody everybody trips up sometimes. So I think you're right that their position in terms of their importance hasn't changed in my mind at all just because mm-hmm. of this case. Yep. So uh, before we leave UFOs, because, of course, I really want to talk about your new book, and I've let people know, you know, this, this show will be uh, one of the few that we don't mostly <laughs> talk UFOs, uh, and we do it, of course, because it's you. You've done so much oh. for the field, and, and this book people are loving. Uh, we – Generously, the publisher let us give some out at the conference, and I've been getting great feedback. But one other thing I wanted to talk to you about was John Podesta, because, of course, it hit the media big, uh, which is good and bad, about us giving Tom DeLonge the award at the conference for Researcher of the Year. And that was mainly due to these WikiLeaks of John Podesta's, where it showed that John Podesta and and Tom DeLonge met with these generals and, and other important people. So... Tom DeLong is actually speaking with important people. Uh, I think we talked about this a little bit last time, too, but just kind of looking towards the future, we haven't heard much from a whole lot from John Podesta uh, 
since the election. Uh, he actually did post something about uh, a space. He essentially tweeted an article and he used the truth is out there tag again, the one he uses for UFOs. But, um, I mean, you're someone who talks to him. Uh, do you think that he may be uh, – that his interest in the topic have, have diminished at all since the election? Uh, do you think he'll continue to have a, an interest in UFOs? Oh, yeah. I don't think his interest in the topic is ever going to diminish. Absolutely. I mean, this is a it's a lifelong interest of his, and he's very committed to it. Uh, so, obviously, the losing the election was a – a blow and I'm sure he's had to regroup and he's now uh, doing some writing for the Washington Post, which I think is great. He's a, one of their editorial or op-ed writers. And I just think, but I no, I mean, he, his interest is not going to change and hopefully he's still going to be in a position to be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's not in government right now, but in some ways that can be an advantage, you know, being at being in government has advantages and disadvantages. And so we'll see how the the thing with Tom DeLonge plays out with him as well. But um, I I can't imagine that John Podesta's interest in this is ever going to change or diminish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just seems to have – it just seems to be a very, very strong interest, which is so interesting. Yeah, I think he's been interested in this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you know, for like, like all of us, once you sort of get what's going on there – and for those of us who have jumped into it, we don't we tend to not lose interest. So I can certainly relate to that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can, too. I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, you may uh, be disappointed or, or once in a while or maybe get disillusioned here or there. But uh, the interest never fades because it, it really is just such a fascinating topic. And it seems as though I and I would I believe you're the same and I'm certainly the same uh, that although I'm on the skeptical end and I, I know you are too I mean I try to take a journalistic aspect to all of this as, as you do as a journalist um, so you have to be kind of skeptical uh, however I really believe there's a genuine mystery here there are unanswered questions that just make this all so fascinating I completely agree and that's the way I like to look at it and you know it's something that official government uh, governments should be engaged with and i think that john podesta certainly agrees with that i mean he he wants to see the government more engaged with it and he's also a big believer in the freedom of information that the people have a right to know whatever there might be that we're not being given access to uh so that's a big that's sort of the his his approach into it is through government openness the people's right to know and um, I think he recognizes the significance of this issue in a, in a really big way. So. Mm -hmm. Cool. So my last question, I guess, regarding UFOs is the other thing that you've written about recently or, or in the last – it's probably maybe been a year, but uh, that at least got a lot of uh, coverage was the UFO Data Project. I did get to interview Mark Rodinger about it, uh, which was great. I always love talking to him. Um and that's still continuing. It's still, still continuing. I mean, it's a, it's a very slow process because everybody involved has full-time jobs, families. It's all volunteer. So it's, you know, they're the, the members are scattered all over the world. But it's definitely there and it's happening. It's just uh, a little bit slow, you know. 
but it, we're we're all still very committed to it, and and um, the board is working as as best they can to. A lot of it is that the fundraising is always an issue in this field, um, and we've gotten quite a lot of donations, but we're not quite at the level we need to be at to build the first station, which is going to, which is going to be the turning point for the for the group when we can build that first station to start collecting data. Mm-hmm. So, but we're getting closer all the time. And um, I still I, I believe in the group, and I think we're going to reach our goal, and I'm excited about it. Cool. Well, I'll continue to keep an eye on that and uh, interview those guys as time goes on. But so this new book, so it, which is kind of another supernatural topic, uh, which is evidence for an afterlife. How did you get interested in this topic? Well, Alejandro, I've been interested in it for a long time, and it's sort of been kind of in the background of, you know, I mean, I was definitely more focused on UFOs, but during all the years in which I was primarily focused on UFOs, I was exploring this in various ways. Mm. I helped uh, develop a film that was being made by Tim Coleman and just always been very interested in it. And then... um when our, our good friend Bud Hopkins died in 2011, um, which was one year after my UFO book came out, uh, I was with him when he died. And I was very involved with the whole process of his death. And he went into hospice and uh, it was a very peaceful, conscious kind of a dying process. And that really made a big impact on me, just being present at the moment that he took his last breath. I mean, it's a very profound experience to go through Mm -hmm. Uh, at least it was for me and i think it probably is for a lot of other people it just leaves you very kind of awestruck and it's almost surreal it was almost surreal for me to just witness that and to have to be able to deal with the fact that he was somebody is present one moment and then they're gone Mm -hmm. you know second and you just it's very hard thing to wrap your mind around how it how it can happen I, I, it's, I don't think I can explain that very well until, and except for people who may have experienced it themselves, but it really had a big effect on me and it made me start asking. It made me, it sort of reconnected me with the desire to start asking these questions at a more, a deeper level than I had in the past. It, it just was sort of like a motivation for me to jump into this a little bit more. And then, um, I spent about another year dealing with all the effects of the UFO book and the, the documentary that was on the History Channel. And, and then uh, the publisher who published the UFO book approached me and um, we discussed this. You know, and I was at that moment actually ready to approach them as well. It was really quite amazing because I had actually written up a proposal to do something on this. And that very week they called my agent and said, hey, is Leslie Kane interested in doing another book? So it all came together very naturally, and I had a meeting with them, and they were really excited about it at my publishers. Um, and so I jumped into it, and I've been working on it ever since. And it's, it was a very different experience than dealing with UFOs, which we can talk about if you want. But um, I'm very—I just find it absolutely fascinating all the material that there is. Mm-hmm. To suggestive of some kind of survival past death. I mean, we certainly can't prove that. But it's a diverse body of information, and um, it's really, really fascinating to me. Yeah, 
Yeah. I was there when my grandfather passed. And, well, there's a couple aspects when it comes to, like, for instance, my grandparents. And this is an aspect that really fascinates me is when my with my grandfather, mm-hmm. um, my aunt had – one of my aunts had come and she – we were all waiting overnight because we thought it might happen that night. Um, and she went into his room and she kind of yelled. And so we all went in there because I guess she just felt it was happening. It was very strange. So it was right after she got into the room. So we all went in the room. He opened his eyes and he looked at my aunts and uncles who and all of us who were around the bed. And then he left. And it was like he waited. You know, it was... Mm. The, it was one of the rare times we were all together in years and well, at that moment when we're all together he leaves and you know it makes you wonder because that's inexplicable I mean we don't have an understanding for why things and then with my other grandparents they uh, were together for many years and, and they passed within a few weeks of each other and this is something that's common right um, right Older couples passing within weeks of each other or, or days or hours, or I think it's recorded once at the same time. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, That's this amazing. whole aspect of death and, and why this all works the way it works is another major unknown mystery. It's another mystery. And, you know, exactly. And it makes you ask questions about uh, whether there are forces in operation there that you know, or not just sort of accidental. Like you said, it didn't seem like your grandfather, that that moment was an accident. Mm-hmm. You, know? uh, you said, if, and he opened his eyes and actually was able to make eye contact and see everybody, right? In the room. Correct. Uh huh. Even though he'd probably been unconscious for a while, right? He had been. You're right. You're exactly correct. So that's, you know, that's quite extraordinary. I mean, there's, there's studies that have been done of people, in, in more extreme situations where you even have Alzheimer's people, people that are severely, you know, with severe brain problems who at the very end of life will suddenly become completely lucid. They call it terminal lucidity. Hmm. I mean, they've been, you know, medical journals have studied this. There have been papers written about it where somebody who couldn't talk, let's say, for years and years and years and had brain damage suddenly becomes like a normal person right before they pass on. It's it's just bizarre. They can't explain it. Wow. Do they have any theories as to the mechanisms that might be at work? Uh, you know, it's not something I know that much about, Alejandro, uh-huh. because for my book, it really wasn't related to the question right. of who survived death. So I didn't focus on a, a lot, but I do remember reading some papers, and I don't think that the brain people understand it. Yeah. What, but the people who are sort of connected more with the survival argument might say that, you know, that person, just like with any kind of end of life experiences that normal people have, there's, they will argue that there may be some kind of a connection that's made to the quotes other side or whatever you want to call it, you know, to the, whatever the, the other dimension is that we might be passing into that you kind of go in and out of it at the end of life. And before Mm -hmm. you actually physically fully die, there might be some connection that you've made to that realm and, and you're sort of halfway there and halfway here. And so they might argue that a person like that who has opened up to the kind of clarity that they're going to have when they leave their body, and that's why it comes through like this for mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't even have a functioning brain. 
And, you know, it all points to the argument, which I deal with in my book about uh, whether the, the consciousness can operate independently of the brain. I mean, that's a big question. And there seems to be a lot of data that suggests that indeed it can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an important point because it doesn't prove that we survive death, but it certainly proves the capacity for consciousness to, to exist independently of the brain and of the physical body, which would then make you, you know, which, which certainly supports anyway the possibility that that might also happen when we die. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, let's get into some of those. So one of those uh, uh, areas would be near-death experience um, situations. What, I guess, I, I think it's theorized that these could just be, you know, chemical reactions in the brain causing, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, these people to experience these fantasies. But what uh, would you argue would be would demonstrate that this is more than that well there's a lot of things and i'm you know what i did in my book just like i did with the ufo book i invited some of the experts to write their own chapters which i Mm -hmm. think is part of what the power of this book is and in in my book pim von lummel who's an expert on ndes wrote this absolutely fantastic chapter and there's a lot of i mean you know I mean, I'd rather have people read it, quite honestly, or, or look at one of his lectures on YouTube than, than me try to explain it. But he deals with all the various uh, arguments that skeptics have made about NDEs, you know. And he, he has come to the conclusion that there is no one explanation that can deal with all the, ver- all the aspects of NDEs that, that explain it. Mm-hmm. Certainly it's not a hallucination because you have to have a brain to hallucinate. And these are people that have no brain function. So I think the question of NDEs, it's, it's the universality of them. It's the effect that they have on the experiencers. Uh, it's the similarities between them and, uh, you know, and, and the main point being that when the ones that occur, when there's no brain activity in a person, uh, you know, it's just unexplainable. But I, I would recommend that people, I'm not an expert on that particular topic. I'm more just somebody who wants to give a voice to the experts. But what I think interests me even more than NDEs as a journalist is the is the um, what we call veridical OBEs, when mm-hmm. people will be out of their bodies when they have when they're essentially brain dead and they're able to report when they wake up specific things that happened in the room when they were supposed to have been essentially dead. So they'll be able to report sounds that they've heard and things that they've seen from their position at the ceiling that they couldn't possibly have known because they were completely unconscious. And that's very evidential for the fact that the body can, can that the, the consciousness is functioning outside of the body because they can actually give a specific evidence, you know what I mean? Whereas an mm-hmm. ending is a lot more subjective. So I, I feel like those vertical OBEs, and I've got some really fascinating cases about, of them in the book, are really significant, at least for establishing that, that mm-hmm. people can perceive things without a brain, basically. They can right. Perceive. Can you remember a story in particular? Well, there's one um, about the, this famous story about, which I, about a shoe that was seen on a hospital ledge. Have you ever heard that story before? No. It's really fascinating. And it was a social worker whose name was Kimberly Clark Sharp, who was working in this big hospital in Seattle. And one of the, a woman came in and had a heart attack. And she was 
in the hospital and then she had another heart attack and she was basically dying and they were doing all the resuscitation. She was completely unconscious and they were doing what they do to kind of try to bring somebody back to life when they've essentially gone, you know, into their brain has stopped, the heart has stopped, et cetera. And after that event happened, this patient told the social worker, whose name is Kimberly, um, that when she was unconscious, she had left, when she was going through this resuscitation, she had left her body and she was outside the hospital. And on one of the windows in the hospital outside, there was a tennis shoe sitting on this ledge. And she described exactly what the shoe looked like from a perspective that could not be seen from the inside of the window. So she described things on the outside of the shoe. And, you know, Kimberly didn't know what to think of this, but this woman begged her to go find it. She, she just begged Kimberly to go look for that shoe because she said she had seen it when she left her body. And it was this massive hospital. I have a picture of it in my book. I mean, you can't even, you can't walk around on the outside to look for the shoe. There's not even a, oh, there wasn't even a road that went around the whole thing. So Kimberly went through room by room, floor by floor, opening the windows and looking out. And she finally found this shoe on this ledge. And it fit the exact description of what this patient had told her. Parts of it being areas that were scuffed, for instance, that were not even visible from the inside of the, of the window when she looked at it from the window. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty interesting case of, uh, you know, somebody who has some evidence to report back when they've come back into their bodies. That's one one case that I and I had Kimberly actually write her own chapter in the book about her experience dealing with that. It was pretty it's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a fascinating example. And, you know, getting back to the NDEs, one thing that's interesting is that the uh explanation of the experiences um i've talked to several of these people myself it's kind of reminiscent i mean you had mentioned bud hopkins earlier of the abduction experience in that you have a lot of anecdotal information but what's compelling is they're describing uh kind of similar experiences and it seems to also uh be true of ndes many of these people of, of different faiths and backgrounds are experiencing or, or describing similar experiences, which is compelling. Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't quite been able to put that together, but I'm not someone I've never been so focused on the abduction issue. Um, but mm-hmm. I know a lot of people have said that. Uh, and I guess, you know, the John Mack people, the, the people who experienced who, who perceive the abduction experience as a positive one. I think there'd be more of an analogy there to the NDE because the NDE is generally very positive for people. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Bud Hopkins, his his analysis was that this was a very negative and frightening and terrifying experience for people. So in that sense, there might not be a similarity. But for, for many people, you know, that they don't perceive their abductions experiences to be negative. So it's a, that is something that people have brought up. I mean, I... It's hard for me to kind of connect them, but that doesn't mean that I won't have more perception about that in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I think UFOs is a very physical phenomenon. I'm very focused on the sort of physicality of the phenomenon and what the data is that we have to show that there's a physicality to it. And, um, and then there's these these other topics to me seem completely different from that. Mm-hmm. But... Anyway, I'm sure people will have an interesting time. I think the um, the NDEs also have this major impact on 
the experiencers that changes their lives. And I think in the, certainly the abductions do the same thing. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean in that um, the experiences, the described experiences are, are similar, even if their perceptions of whether they're bad or good may be different. You know, there are the similarities of, of being taken and experimented upon and so forth. But uh, and with NDEs, yeah, they're they're much more loving, positive kind of experiences, it seems. But um, yeah, they don't it, involve anybody taking them or forcing them against their will or anything like that. I mean, it's right. really quite a different different story than what you hear. With well, them. yeah, I guess my point being that. They're both anecdotal experiences that can't be proven because they don't seem to be uh, physical, although, like the point you made before, the, there's no brain activity being registered while these experiences are right. being perceived at, with the NDE. About them. And I think the, but that's why I like the OBEs that I mentioned because they're mm -hmm. actually concrete. When somebody comes back and says, hey, I saw this this doctor up there, you know, one person from the ceiling described that the doctor, one of the, the people was bald that was working on him, for instance, mm -hmm. and described what the sounds of machines that were making in the room at certain intervals, which allowed them to actually uh, relate a time to when he was out of his body. So they can come back with specific information, and there's no way to explain how they could have acquired that, especially when they're looking at it from a the viewpoint of the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Now, these OBEs where, where people come back and are able to describe something they shouldn't have been able to see um, or hear, uh, is that more common than people may be aware of? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure lots of I'm, – I'm sure it is because just like any phenomenon, you know, lots of times it will happen. The person won't talk about it or they might talk about it right after it happens, but we don't hear about it. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to kind of assume that it probably is. Um, but, you know, so we can only focus on the cases we know about, but uh, I, I suspect there probably are more than we know. Mm -hmm. So you get into to many other aspects, such as um, children who come back and seem to have experienced or remember a, a past life. Yeah, I find those cases really interesting. I start the book with them because I think they're very easy for people to grasp and, and where you have very young children. Um, one, one of the cases in my book, you, the child was only two and literally just beginning to talk. And um, the children come out with so many very specific memories of what they say is a life they lived before. Um, and, and what the cases that are significant have two components. Number one, there's a record kept of what the child says before anything is known about who that child might have been. Mm -hmm. So we, so it's recorded, it's written down, it's filmed by reliable sources. And number two, eventually there's enough specifics that the child provides that investigators are able to actually figure out who the person was in the past life. They're able to, to locate through records that the person existed and the find uh, family members that are still living and are able to confirm that what the child said was 100% accurate. And so when you have cases like that, and, and when you have a two-year-old child talking about names and places that he couldn't possibly know anything about, and this in one case the child had continuous nightmares reliving his previous death, which was horrific. Wow. And parents didn't know what to make of it. 
Um, and then he start, he would tell them things about this. And, and they were so specific that they were eventually able to figure out who he was in the past life. And everything that he had told them turned out to be accurate. And this was a kid in diapers. Mm-hmm. They often play act uh, the careers of the previous person. They'll they'll you know they'll they'll have a lot of information and knowledge about a certain area that the other person, the previous person, was involved with that they have never been exposed to. Things like that. So those cases are really very difficult to explain away. And, mm-hmm. Other in to just explain them away, and the skeptics can say, "Well, they're all fantasies or something," but they can't say that in the cases that have been solved because this what they're giving are so specific, and they 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 turn out to be right. They turned out to be true because they were able to find that person. So those cases, I, I, yeah, they're really really interesting to me, and I have got two cases in my book that are, I think, really fascinating that involves mm-hmm. small American children. And it doesn't just happen in Eastern, you know, in Asian countries where reincarnation is well accepted. They have to actually happen in the United States, too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, my girlfriend loves those uh, stories. She's always giving me these books to read about these these sorts of stories, too. Um, but, you know, and we're always commenting, because I love watching child prodigies, especially musical uh, prodigies. And, and, no doubt, you know, when they begin singing or playing their instruments, they they look wise. They almost look old, and, and the expressions and the emotions they seem to be experiencing are just beyond what they can have personally experienced in their short lifetimes. Um, no, it's quite phenomenal. I mean, who knows if some of the musical prodigies are, um, you know, re- reliving something from past life. We have no way of knowing. It's only when they give you the information and then you can verify it, you know, that you mm-hmm. can have any proof of anything. And that's why these cases are so significant. When you might have like a list of 12, 12 facts, 12 very specific points that a child makes, you have no idea who he's talking about. You're able to somehow find that. There's various ways you can find that person because you have enough information they've told you about to try to look them up, right? You mm-hmm. find who the a person was that fits the description you find their family members and you find out that all 12 points are accurate then you you know it's sort of you're not just speculating about well maybe this was a past life you're actually seeing that the specific uh points that the child made are just are correspond perfectly to the life of one specific person the very person that that child says that they were in the past life and they might know a lot more I mean, the 12, the case in my book, I've got the 12 points that are all points that were recorded before anything was known about the previous personality. But the child uh, told his parents all kinds of other stuff, too. So mm-hmm. it's just mind boggling for a parent when this happens, too. Yeah. So it uh, really points towards, you know, consciousness continuing from one life to another somehow. Mm-hmm. Or some connection being made between that child and that previous person, that person who died. In this case, the person died, I think, about 40 years before the child was even born and had no connection at all to the family, the current family. So, anyway, uh, it's very mysterious, and it certainly makes you wonder if somehow that consciousness has continued on in some form and then kind of come through this child again. That's mm-hmm past if that indeed is the case and there's some kind of con- continuity of consciousness that has occurred 
you know, after death and before death. And so there, that's, that sort of sets my book into this exploration of how could this be possible and how is it possible that consciousness could possibly, you know, could continue on like that and exist independently of the physical body. And so I look at a lot of different ways that that, that suggests that that could be the case. Mm-hmm. And there could be, I mean, it's entirely, because I, I think of all this quite a bit, and I know there there are people who talk to this, there could be even scientific explanations, in other words, mechanisms that one day in the distant future we could, we may understand. Through scientific mechanisms, you mean? Yeah, for instance, um, there are some that talk about, you know, a, a sort of this consciousness um, there may be reasons, that the properties of it, uh, and why it does, uh, you know, like you say, um, kind of inhabit another body in the future. Right, or how it how it operates independently of the brain, and that's one. Also, Pimbon Lummel, who I mentioned earlier, writes a beautiful couple of paragraphs about just what he calls non-local consciousness and how the brain rather than being the creator of consciousness, could be more of a receiver for consciousness that is out in sort of this cloud, you know, in a way out there. And that, uh, anyway, it's it's a whole different way of looking at it from the sort of uh, the materialistic paradigm that we have now that science has offered us, which says that everything is rooted biologically. Everything has a biological or a material source. Um, and, Nonetheless, science is not able to explain how the brain would create consciousness. That has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. So it's, up for, it's up for debate, absolutely up for debate. There's no proof that the brain creates consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, and these theories also oh. allow for uh, something else that you get into, which is mediumship. Um, the possibility that maybe some of these people are really getting messages or somehow able to communicate with um, non-physical uh, um, consciousness. Yeah, I mean, for it's, it's hard to find the terminology. Yeah. But yes, I mean, the question then becomes if indeed consciousness is able to exist independently of the brain, which I think I've been able to show, you know, pretty well that that's very likely in the book. I and then take the step of well, if that's the case, uh, can we actually communicate with these consciousnesses when they are not in the body? I mean, it seems sort of. If you take it one step at a time, it doesn't seem like a a, a terribly yeah. ridiculous question. You know, if, if consciousness is out there, can we speak? Can we connect with it? Can we communicate to it? And so that's where mediumship comes in, as you brought up. And um, I I had some incredible. Uh, I sort of decided to test it myself, and I had two very incredible readings with these outstanding mediums which I describe in the book and I give the specific things that they brought through and they were ex- very, very accurate. And they uh, brought through not only the specific information about the person that they said was coming from, there were two people, but also the personalities came through. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's very compelling. You're sitting there and I was very careful, particularly with the second reading that the medium didn't know my name. I, I, I made up a fake name. I gave, I made it, I took out a whole new email address that didn't involve my name in order to, to communicate with the medium. And she had no idea even where on the whole planet I was. She was in Ireland, but I could have been anywhere in the world because we just communicated through Skype on the day of the reading. 
Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I was all it was all communication through email with a completely phony name. And this woman who didn't even know my name sat there on the on in Skype with me and gave me, you know, 30 I don't know how many accurate data points about these from these people which she said were from the people that I was connected to who had died. It's quite it's just mind-blowing when that happens to you. You can't comprehend it. How can this be? And as I say in the book, it's either it's either what she says it is, that there is a deceased consciousness speaking through her, or it's it's the medium using her own very sophisticated and refined psychic abilities to access the information through her own telepathy or clairvoyance. In other words, to sort of read my mind as opposed to reading, getting information from somebody who had died. I mean, those are the only two options that I can think of to explain it. And either either one of them is extraordinary. Either one mm-hmm. of them is a challenge to the materialist paradigm. But I, I was extremely careful that there's no way this person could have known anything about me ahead of time. So it, it shows that the process of mediumship works. And it's how you explain it that's the interesting question. But... But the fact that it even works is something a lot of people don't accept. So that alone isn't. It's sort of like with UFOs. The fact that the phenomenon exists was really the focus of my book. And that's that alone to me is extraordinary and that we really have data to prove that there is a real phenomenon. It's the interpretation of it that's up for grabs. You know, are they extraterrestrial? Where are they from? We don't have definitive answers to that. Just Mm -hmm. like... And to me, there's sort of a parallel there. With mediumship, we know that the phenomenon of mediumship can work. And the the question is the interpretation of it. Are the messages coming from deceased people or are they coming from the telepathy, the powers of the medium to just read minds? We don't know for sure. But Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's similar, too, in the fact that there are, of course, many fraudulent mediums out there, many deluded mediums who think they can do things they can't do. You know, the majority of them, we wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. They use cold reading techniques and things like that to fool people. But it's that nugget of 10% or whatever, just like with the UFOs, the, the, the very, very key and important mediums that can do it, that we're interested in. Those are the ones that... Um, you know, are, are really worth studying. And there are, there are actual scientists that are studying these mediums, too, in the labs and so on. Mm-hmm. That's sort of my take on mediumship, but it's very compelling when you have an experience of it yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's cool in our conversation in, in your book that you, you talk about past lives uh, and, and the possibility of, of this sort of, of reincarnation being possible and the evidence of it and along with the mediumship and this is always something that makes me curious is that you know if these bodies reincarnate how are they speaking with uh, a consciousness that may have already reincarnated well I mean I think most mediums are clearly clear that they are speaking with a consciousness that is not reincarnated and maybe mm. maybe not everybody even does reincarnate. I mean, we don't really know much about it, you know. Mm-hmm. They they're speaking with a consciousness that has. It's often somebody who has, but not always. Somebody may have died, you know, with not too long ago, because the sitter, the person seeking the medium, is usually trying to connect with somebody that they've lost 
not too long ago because they, you know, they're grieving or they want to, they want to make that connection. So, you know, as far as I experienced it, it's somebody that is clearly has died. Um, I don't know if maybe they do reading sometimes with people who, re, you know, are in the, I can't imagine it happening that way that you mean that somebody's actually in a physical body and the, and the medium will actually get a reading for, uh, messages from them while they're in the physical body. Not that I know of, but why, I, my question, what, if, you know, why haven't they reincarnated? How can they connect with everyone if, if some people have reincarnated? And there's been one scientist who's, who's told me that it could be that the mechanism doesn't use the, doesn't work in the same space time that, that we work in and that, you know, they have been able to register, uh, at least on the, you know, very small level, the, you know, particles or atoms that don't work with time the way that right uh, and that could be something going on there who Absolutely. knows it opens, it's, up, it, it opens up a lot of unanswered questions and that's mm. one of the reasons I love this material too is because it just points even more deeply to the mystery of the whole thing there's so many questions that we can't answer but are fascinating mm -hmm. to contemplate mm -hmm. and and lastly i do want to touch on this before we're done uh you even talk tackle kind of uh, ghosts or some of these things being able to materialize and maybe even uh, manipulate the physical world. Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's in a way the most fascinating part of all of this. Uh, even though I try to walk people through the book gradually so that when they get to this very more, you know, more mind boggling stuff, they're kind of ready for it. So mm -hmm. I, I, in some ways, I don't like to talk about it out of context, but uh, you know, it's very, very weird stuff. Apparitions are, of course, fascinating. I don't think anybody really has an issue with apparitions. Um, and I do have Lloyd Auerbach, who's, a, who's been studying them for, forever, talk about them. Great, fascinating cases of apparitions actually providing information about their lives when they were here on Earth, and which is later able to be verified. And the apparitions, you have multiple witnesses to them, so... Wow. It's not like just some guy having a beer and seeing a ghost. It's it's really <laughs> studies that are done just like, you know, it's a serious case studies that are done that are fascinating. But, you know, physical mediumship is to me uh sort of the the uh, I don't know what you would call it, the sort of exclamation point, you know, that uh and is so strange and so shocking and so wonderful to study and to be part of and I I do write quite a bit of, about that, where you actually have some kinds of forces coming through that can manipulate physical objects, which people can see consistently. So it's not, and everybody agrees about what they're seeing. Um, they can be studied. These mediums can be studied and they actually do uh, facilitate materializations of things and levitations of things. So, um, it's very, it's mind-boggling. But as far as these, again, the mediums themselves are convinced that they are dealing, dealing with energies from people who have died. In terms of not just the mental mediums we talked about earlier, but the physical mediums also, who are actually in trance, and it's a very different process when their their readings are done or their sittings are are held with groups, but. Anyway, there's also the realm of after-death communications, which I think so many people have experienced that, where uh, they, where somebody they has died who they're close to, and they they experience themselves receiving uh, communications or physical effects in their 
homes involving electrical appliances, uh, very, very, very vivid dreams that they feel are not actually dreams, but they're actually contacting that person. So that's another realm of I, I find fascinating in which I've also had personal experiences um, with after death communications and there have been studies done on them as well. So the book kind of integrates my own experiences. It's more, it's more about research and uh, studies, but it also integrates my own personal experiences with all of this because unlike with UFOs, with this topic, you can go out and put yourself into it and test it yourself in various ways. And you can, uh, sometimes you'll have experiences, whereas they're just more available to you than with it. Whereas with UFO, of course, you know, you, you have no way of knowing if you're ever going to see one. Mm-hmm. So this is something you can jump into in a different way. And, and the whole book for me was very much of a personal exploration as well as a study, a research endeavor. And so in that way, it was very different from UFOs. I, when I began, I didn't know where I would end up really. And with UFOs, I had studied it for a decade already before I wrote the book. So I kind of knew what I was going to say. But with this, it was a a more of a discovery process as I went along. And it still is. I'm still, you know, learning and and very fascinated by it and very involved with it. So it was different in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, what a great way to put it together, to take people on this journey of, uh, you know, putting the pieces together uh, to demonstrate that each, each, like you said, uh, areas of this phenomenon has been studied um, and has been, you know, thought about uh, by experts, and uh, there are papers and and there's research out there, and, and so it, I guess, kind of like the UFO phenomena, is not necessarily as strange as a lot of people think it might be. Although the one difficult aspect. Of, of this arena is there's more religious kind of beliefs that come uh, into play. Right. And everybody, you know, and I don't, this is not a religious book in the slightest. I'm not a religious mm-hmm. person, but I, I personally, you know, I would hope that the information in this book would not really be seen as challenging or, or somehow conflicting with religious beliefs. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think it can be integrated very well. It's just a, uh, I think most religions deal with the question of the afterlife and maybe people would be interested in seeing if there's actual data that suggests that it's not just about belief systems. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Maybe some people won't like some of the data in it. Cause if, it, if I mean, maybe some religions believe that once you're in the next realm, you can't communicate for instance, I don't know, but I'm just um, looking at what we knew, know and what we don't know about mm-hmm. all. And there's so many different areas, too, that to draw from. And as I as I say, there, as you, you said, there's sort of a progression of going from one to the next. And I, that's also another way it's different from UFOs. I think this work is much more complex and multi-layered than the UFO work was for me anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I'm drawing from so many different areas and kind of showing how they all Connect. It's very important for me to see how they interconnect and support are mutually supportive, how they all point in the same direction, even though they're often presented as separate areas. I, I've sort of shown how they all interconnect, and I think that's really important. But it's way more complicated for me than the UFOs topic. Uh, and, yeah, there's a religious belief system that 
comes into play. But I, I've, I've, I've kept that out of the book completely so people can make use of it in whatever way they want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and personal, almost like the UFO area actually also, it's personal experience uh, accounts for so much. So many people have had personal experiences along these lines. I, I've done a lot of different paranormal research and, and writing, even though I mostly focus on UFOs now. I used to do more ghost hunting, although I, I hadn't had any of my own personal experiences. There was a time where I just felt this love, this really deep love th- for this friend mm-hmm. um, who was uh, who had cancer and was struggling, and I hadn't heard any updates, but the last update I had heard was positive. And I just felt re- really strongly for her, and I thought, I, I hope she's okay. I was shopping, I think at Target or, or Walmart or some store, I remember. And uh, then I got a phone call either the next day, not very long after, and I just knew when I saw it was a mutual friend who was calling me, I knew, oh my gosh, this is what the phone call is about. And sure enough, that's what the phone call was about that this mutual friend had passed and oh. I asked about what time and she said it was it was last night which was about the same time I had that feeling and and oh. you know there are so many similar stories to that and some people with loved ones when their loved one passes they physically see them in their home or something right um, yep that's that's a very fairly common thing and that is also something that Peter Fennick has explored in my book who's, who's you know an expert on end-of-life experiences and I think he calls them deathbed coincidences when some, mm-hmm. you know, in some, in some cases, the person, the recipient, which was what you were in that situation, doesn't even, you know, has no idea that the person's died like you didn't. Mm-hmm. They might not even know that the person was sick. And then suddenly they'll get a vision of the person or they'll feel like the person's visiting them or they'll get, you know, they'll, whatever it is, something will manifest in their lives very close to the time of that death. And it, it it is it's it's fascinating and um, it's not as it's quite common actually, right around yeah. the time of death. So, you know, I mean that could be explained as again as something psychic that's going on that you were connected to that person, so you might have had a psychic perception of your own of that person. Who knows? But it doesn't feel that way, right? It feels like it's something external from you, the recipient, that has entered mm-hmm. into space entered into your reality you don't feel like you're the one creating that mm-hmm. so um that's what's so compelling about it yeah it's compelling and and you know i'm not a religious person either um uh, but it's so it's beautiful in that it's possible maybe we can kind of you know give this goodbye message of, of you know this love or or hello or or you know, as we we exit this existence, um, it's really it's right. spiritual and beautiful, even for the non-religious. Right, and that's the message that usually comes through the mediums as well, if people are willing to accept that. You know that um, that the the place that we do dwell in after death is a, is a beautiful one. That people are happy and full of love there. Mm-hmm. So many people, when someone dies and they're grieving, they're they're so worried and about the person and are they, you know, anyway, it's often very reassuring for people who are grieving. If they have a, a meeting, a reading with a medium that's accurate, it has to be specific enough that you can be really convinced that, that there's something to it, right? It can't just be sort of generalities that can apply to anyone. 
But when they're very, very specific and the medium brings forth information that is known to only a few people, maybe just you and the person who's died even, it's very comforting to people. And because then they believe that there is some kind of continuity and that they also are usually given the message that the person who died is, is in a loving space and that it's a, you know, it's a beautiful environment to be in and things like that. So it serves a purpose for people who are grieving. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing about this book. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy everybody that, uh, has gotten a copy that I've talked to is really loving it. So uh, I can't wait to read it myself, which I have not done because I've been, uh, I was on the beach, to be honest. You were on and, the beach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Too busy working on my tan and running around on the beach and, and having fun. But uh, it's definitely the next book I'm going to read. But uh, thank you so much for coming on and being willing to come on and to talk about this and uh, give us some updates on the different UFO stuff at the beginning. And where's the best place for people to get the book? Well, the book, first of all, it's called Surviving Death. A journalist investigates evidence for an afterlife. And um, the best place to go is a new website that we've set up for this book. It also has the UFO book on it. And the website is survivingdeathcane.com. So it's the title of the book, Surviving Death, my last name, which is K-E-A-N, dot com I all right a facebook page uh under my name that has a lot of stuff on it as well so all right and i'm i'm sharing the facebook uh posts that you put and retweeting your your face your tweets uh, as well so uh sharing that information that way but That's um alejandra thank you so much and and all my best to you and everybody listening thank you thank you very much Okay, take care. Thank you so much to Leslie for coming on the show. I know this was a little bit different. It wasn't UFOs, but it's still very interesting. I hope you all agree. And, of course, you know, as Leslie and I talked about, I think there are quite a few similarities. But, um, you know, both rely on anecdotal information, but there's also been studies done that people don't know about. So really interesting and both, of course, kind of weird topics that people um, kind of raise their eyebrows to or uh, kind of taboo somewhat, um, like we talked about. But a great book. Everybody's got to check it out, uh, as you heard from Martin and uh, as I've heard from others. People who are reading the book really like it. So Surviving Death and you can go to survivingdeathcane.com. Kane is spelt K-E-A-N. Leslie Kane. So thank you also to Martin. Speaking of Martin, who helped us with the news at the beginning of the show. And thank you to uh, you all for being so patient. Hopefully you were patient. Some of you actually weren't so patient. But most of you were pretty patient. And that's, that's very appreciated. And waiting for the show to come out. So, of course, it came out on a Wednesday, but hey, we got one out this week. And hopefully I'll have one out by Monday. I'll have to work on that and get that arranged. But, like I said, sorry, Beach wins. Uh, Beach always wins for me. (laughs) But 
Uh, you know, we've got uh, more shows coming up, so stay tuned. There's lots of exciting stuff on the horizon uh, that we'll be able to share with you all as time goes on. And also, like I said, go to our YouTube channel, uh, Open Minds Production YouTube channel, and you'll be able to check out the video that we put together for the Phoenix Lights. Also, uh, be sure to check out our video on demand because we're posting some of the 2017 UFO Congress videos on there. So go subscribe for a small monthly fee, and you'll be able to watch all kinds of great video info, including previous lectures from Leslie Kane that uh, when she's presented at the Congress. Also, when it comes to the Phoenix Lights, we've got Frances Barwood, who was the city councilwoman, during the Phoenix Lights uh, incident, uh, she was a Phoenix City Councilwoman. I've interviewed her on Open Minds uh, UFO Radio before. However, her discussion at the Congress was great because it's just so terribly interesting, everything that she went through to try to investigate what the heck was going on and, and the problems she ran into trying to do that. So go check out her uh, lecture and more at the video on demand portal where you can get just hours and hours and hours of videos and and great information to watch. Other than that, that's it for the show. Thank you to Caleb Hanks for the opening and closed music. That music is super cool. If you want to know more about Caleb Hanks music, you can go to the Open Minds UFO Radio um tab or the page at the homepage at openminds.tv where you can see more about the articles and the news that Martin and I spoke about earlier. So thank you all so much for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. Adios muchachos.